Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing, brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm your host, David Thornton. When volatility rattles markets, microcaps and small caps typically suffer the biggest drawdowns. But markets have a reliable habit of reverting back to the mean sooner or later. That's very good news if you're investing in small caps, arguably now. This week's guest is Matthew Booker, Portfolio Manager at Sferia Asset Management. Matt's managed small company portfolios for over 15 years, consistently outperforming the index. The Sferia Australian Microcap Fund has outperformed the S&P ASX Small Ordinaries Accumulation Index by over 7% per annum since inception, while the Smaller Companies Fund has outperformed that same index by over 3% per annum. Just as importantly, they've managed to preserve capital and outperform the benchmark through the volatility of the past year. In today's episode, we discuss where we are in the small cap cycle, the opportunities Sferia are targeting in the market, capital preservation, and the former market darling that's back in business. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Matt, thanks for joining us on the Rules of Investing. Thanks, David. Appreciate your time. What's your read of markets as of April 2023? How are balance sheets looking um, at this point in the business cycle? Uh, It's been a challenging 12, 18 months in the markets, especially in the small cap space. You've seen, I guess, a lot of uh, share prices falling and a lot of, um, you know, downgrades across across the sectors. And I guess the macro's been pretty difficult uh, with interest rates going up. Um, It's really created a lot of, I, I guess, uncertainty around the consumer and the consumer drives a lot of the companies that we own in some way. So yeah, it's been pretty challenging, um, 12 months. Um, you know, balance sheets are actually pretty good across small cap space. And I think you saw that over the last three years during that COVID period, a lot of, a lot of the companies replenished their balance sheets. So a lot have, you know, plentiful cash on their balance sheet. Um, you know, the debt levels aren't too high. So they, they should be in pretty good shape. And that, that means they can get through some pretty tough times. And I think there's some pretty tough times coming in the economy. Um, energy prices are going up. Interest rates have gone up. There's a lot of consumer pressure and there's inflationary pressure um, due to, I think, supply side issues that have built up over, over time. So you don't think a bull market's around the corner just yet? I think a lot will be driven by the interest rate direction. I think we're starting to peak and, and tap out on that, on that macro factor. And so any sort of peaking or topping out is good. Um, any reduction in interest rates will be really positive for the share market. And I think small caps will probably benefit first and the most, as, as is usual, out of these corrections. What's been the biggest lesson from the volatility of the past year? Just making sure that the balance sheets in order for the companies that you own, particularly in the small cap space, if they don't have access to capital um, or it's hard to get capital, then there's uh, distress and there's uh, you know share price losses and significant losses. Um, so you just want to make sure the share price can support the company through difficult times. Uh, sorry, that the balance sheet can support the company through difficult times. You know, I guess diversity in your portfolio as well. Just making sure that you've got the best in each sector 
Um, so you try and tick the boxes and find ideas that, that meet your process. And our process is very cash flow driven. So just going through the sectors and making sure that we've covered off and, and found all the companies that kind of meet our process requirements and, and the valuations make sense as well. Does your process change at all or you stick to your guns and it's business as usual? The process is constant, consistent. Um, we've always had a consistent approach as to how we look at companies and we just make sure that we're consistent across sectors as well. And so we're not um, having any emotional bias towards a sector. And, and that's hard to do because sometimes you do get, I mean, we're, we're human and, and, and emotion does affect us and we get biases towards sectors. So we're very consistent with our process. We're looking for high cash flow genera- generative companies. And when we talk about cash flow, we're talking about after capital expenditures. Um, just like anything, if it's got free cash flow, it can self it can be self sufficient uh, through the cycle, and that's really important. And then you know, I think that one of the important things is is valuation discipline. You can find the perfect company process wise, but if you pay too much for it, um, it can be the perfectly wrong investment. So just being careful in terms of valuation. While still negative, your microcaps and smaller companies funds um, have still outperformed the benchmark over the past 12 months by, what was it, 5.7 and 3.6% respectively. How do you think about preserving capital? Yeah, well, look, the market's volatile, it's cyclical. Um, You know, I, I think we didn't get caught up in the sort of momentum phase of the market. And that was when there was cheap, easy money floating around. Uh, we stuck to our valuation disciplines and I think it helps us through the cycle. So yeah, we might not have kept up in a hot market, but in a down market, we've had, had less downside. So, you know, I think through the cycle, our process keeps us honest and, you know, keeps us out of, out of troubling and creates less cyclicality through the cycle. And I think that's, that's why we get consistent performance. The last 12 months have been reasonably good versus the index. Um, the index is down a lot. Um, you know, we've, we've done better than that. You know, we've had a, f- a few takeovers, especially recently, which have, has buoyed performance. But, um, you know, 12-month timeframes, it's hard to manage money on that, that sort of timeframe. We, we try and focus on three to five years. A lot of the companies we've owned, we've owned since, um, since the inception of Sphere, which is coming up to seven years. You don't own a lot of specky commodities names. No. Um, and I mean, Liontown did 90% last month and that hurt, hurt you against the index. Um, how do you think about commodities and what does it take to invest in a commodities company? Yeah, that's, it's a good question. So we try and treat commodity companies like industrial companies. I guess the one difference is we need to take a long-term view on that commodity and what sort of price, um, you know, we need to have a long-term view on the price. Uh, that's the key input into the valuation. Uh, the lithium space, you know, we, we thought the price wasn't sustainable last year. Um, we looked at cost curves and believed in the long term that um, some of the high cost mines will not exist in the future. We know there's a strong demand cycle behind the lithium um, lithium sector, but we just think the supply side is, has got a lot of high cost production that, that probably won't exist in the long term. Uh, prices will be below the cost of that production um, there's a lot of low-cost produ- um, supply out there. And so we've just taken a, a, a view that uh, l- there's a lot of speculation going in that space. We tend to avoid speculation. Um, it tends to, you know, you can make money in the short term, but it tends to be the greater fool theory and eventually, um, you know, you come unstuck. So there's a lot of, I guess, 
mines that are popping up on the small cap space in that lithium side of the equation and most of them aren't producing yet. Um, when they will be producing, um, we don't know what the lithium price is going to be, but there's risk to, to the downside, we believe, from current levels. And we've seen a big retracement in the lithium price in the last six months or so. Uh, we think that could continue and it's going to make the economics very difficult for a lot of those mines which aren't even producing at the moment. So what's an example then of a commodities company that you do own? We've owned Horizon Oil, which is an oil pro- producing business. We've owned it for since the inception of Sphuria. We bought in, I think it was four or five cents uh, when they were having a lot of issues around um, their Papua New Guinea gas assets. And they ended up divesting that asset and brought it back to their two uh, oil producing assets, which are low cost, um, you know, high quality um, oil oil assets. And the company's gone, you know, from five cents to 17 cents. It's probably paid out, you know, five to 10 cents of dividends over that time. I think our clients have made around $20 million out of that position over the last seven years. So, you know, it's kind of the tortoise versus the hare. We, we back the tortoise. We don't tend to back the hare and the tortoise won in that, in that scenario. Uh, the other one we like is Deterra Royalties. It's spun out of Luca and it just takes a royalty off BHP's mining area or their main uh, iron ore mining area at the moment. And that, that's a very lucrative asset. It's an annuity stream type asset. It's got 50, 60 years of mine life and they're just taking a, taking a clip of that, which is, you know, it ticks all our boxes. It's usually the case that as financial conditions tighten, micros and, and smalls get sold off the most. Yeah. Um, but then, uh, you know, there's mean reversion and they yeah. make it back and then some. Do you think that narrative will play out this time around? I think so. I think we're starting to see that play out now and we've seen a pretty strong rally recently in the microcap, small cap space. It has been driven by some M&As. There's been some significant M&A activity uh, recently and we've benefited from some of that M&A. And I think um, if you look at corporate balance sheets out there, they're strong. Organic growth is slowing. So I think big corporates are looking down the market cap spectrum to buy growth. And so small caps, micro caps fit that bill. And you've also got private equity, which um, needs to deploy to make money. I mean, if they're not deployed, they don't earn fees. So we think private equity is going to continue to be active. Um, Debt markets, we think, will free up, particularly if interest rates come off. So we think there's, I guess, the foundations are are in place for a good rally for micro caps and small caps your best guess is that we've seen the bottom look i never say never i mean you know we it's hard calling markets um we try not to call markets per se we try and invest from a bottom bottom up perspective but i think the foundations are definitely in place for 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 an improvement in absolute returns in small cap and micro cap micro caps and smalls are such an enormous universe on the asx Where do you start? How do you filter down that universe? I guess in the Australian market, you know, we've been doing this a long time. We know a lot of the companies well, intimately. Um, So, you know, we follow companies. We might not necessarily own them until the valuation is attractive. And sometimes it's the case that they go through a challenging period and the valuation becomes attractive. It's a good company. It's mismanaged or there's some sort of external factor which drives that price down to a to a to a level where it's interesting so you know we're following a lot um you know just through experience but also you know we have screens uh, that we use as well just to filter down the universe and um 
you know, I guess that takes out the bias. It picks up high cash flow businesses, high returning, um, you know, based based on historic financials. But we do do use a lot of screens, and we've got a fairly big team now. We're, you know, we're we're nine people. It's a well resourced small cap micro cap team. Um, you know, everyone's very self motivated. Everyone's you know picking up stones and having a look underneath, and 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 everyone's re- really curious and enthusiastic. Like it, it all helps. I mean, there's no magic formula, but I think having the right people and the right processes, the right systems. I think we've got very good systems as well that help us. Are those screens uh, different across the sectors? Um, and do you have set you know, benchmarks or hurdle levels that they have to meet or is it just on a case-by-case basis? It's case-by-case. Case. I mean, we run screens looking for cash flow generation and returns um, you know, by company. We don't have a variation between sectors, so it's just um, it's just going through that, and there's also a valuation uh, filter over the top of that, and that that does pick up some ideas. Um, we have a, a tool that also is a, a contrarian tool, so it looks at um, broker recommendations and inverts them. Um, we find that where you know brokers turn off a company or you know move uh, very negatively that there's often the case as a there's a potential opportunity in that particularly if it it meets our requirements in terms of cash flow generation balance sheet returns and and valuation i've never heard that before like an, an inverse broker yeah. indicator yeah and it works and it works yeah it yeah. works really well some of our best ideas have come from it i think that's incredible yeah don't tell the brokers. Sphere <laughs> um, are, are pretty flexible in terms of the types of opportunities uh, it chases. Um, what are those different buckets and which bucket would you say has the most water in it at the moment? Yeah, look, we, you know, we invest from value to growth. And, but when we talk about growth, we're talking about legitimate growth companies. So they have to go through the process. We're willing to pay more for a genuine growth company. Um, that's has monopolistic or duopolistic characteristics, uh, but yeah, it's it's got to be legitimate. Um, so we we invest across the spectrum. I think at the moment we've seen with the the retracement in the market, we found a lot of um, companies which are challenged and probably fall fall into that sort of value category where they're turnarounds or mean mean reversion type investment opportunities. And that's probably where we're skewed towards at the moment. Um, but there's other companies that we've owned for a long time. We we bought tech. Technology One, probably about four or five years ago. We'd followed it for a long time. We'd owned it previously. Um, it ran into some problems with one client and the share price pretty much halved. And that was the opportunity to buy a big stake. So we bought a huge stake at 4 to $5 in Tech One. I think it's trading around $15 now. We've owned it um, since, that, since that, that time in four or five years ago. Will you own cash burners or they have to be turning a profit? Uh, in that in that growth, our process bucket. allows uh, a small portion of the portfolio to be invested in cash burners. But um, the, the key is that we have to be confident that the company is going to move into cash um, profitability within a five year time frame. Um, and but it is only a smaller part of the portfolio. Also, there's constraints about how much we can own of that specific company in the portfolio. So there's just some portfolio constraints around that, just to protect, just to protect from that risk that um, that it doesn't get to. To break even, you were saying offline that um, mean reversion is another um, opportunity you chase. Mm-hmm. How much of the portfolio is made up of those kind of stocks at the moment? And if you could give us uh, one or two, that would be great. Yeah, I, I couldn't give you a percentage, but um, I'd say 
significant percentage of the portfolios in kind of mean reversion type names where we think um, they've been oversold for, for whatever reason, potentially an external factor, potentially some sort of uh, mismanagement. In that camp at the moment, um, that's that's a good question. I mean, we you know we've got Brevira, which um, is a software company. Um, it's going through a turnaround at the moment. I think um, there's been a lot of uh, mis-execution for the company, a bit of a lot of poor management in the past. But we think the systems, the software they have is uh, is very good, and you know we think they can increase their share in the industry. So there's a there's a market share accretion story going forward, just through um, being better managed. But they they're going through a process now of realigning their cost base with their revenue. They've got an existing um, strong sort of uh, recurring revenue base, but they can grow that revenue as they take share, both in Australia and the UK, with the um, the systems that they have. What are some red flags for you guys? What characteristics can a company have that will just make you say, no, forget about it? Uh, you know, I focus on EBITDA. Uh, we, we find that EBITDA is usually a flatted figure. They back out stock compensation. Um, they back out, you know, one-offs. They back out, you know, all sorts of costs to, to get a flatted number, an inflated number. So, you know, a fixation obsession with EBITDA does... Um, does I guess give us some, you know, uh, some respite. Just some, yeah. We just we, we do have issues with that. So um, and I mean, that, the, the the market's obsessed with it. When we report yeah. on company earnings, yeah, EBITDA is right up the top of the list. Yeah, well, we we like to dig in behind the EBITDA and look at the cash flow behind that. And we often talk about a cash EBIT, and that cash EBIT's fully diluted for for cap capitalized costs. And so we just make sure that. Um, you know what we reckon is a business. Business's lifeblood is its free cash flow generation. Every every month, you know, money goes into the bank of a business, and we want to make sure that that cash balance is going up. And you know, EBITDA. If you look below EBITDA, you can have all sorts of capitalized costs, etc., that just soak up all that EBITDA. And there's no free cash flow generation. So cash EBIT is what we focus on. Uh, and like I said, that's fully diluted for any sort of capitalized cost and capital expenditures. Has the past decade of you know, free debt made it harder to pick apart a company's cash position? Yeah, free debt and free equity pretty much. Yeah, um, yeah a lot of the companies have been, I guess, promoted and have um, been supported by losing money, as you said, cash burners. And that's made it a difficult market for us uh, during periods. I think leading up to COVID in March 2020, it was a really difficult time. Um, you know, a lot of the sort of growth momentum companies that were burning a lot of money, sort of tech tech type companies um, found favour and that was a really difficult market to outperform. So yeah, look, cheap cheap money of any type makes it difficult for us. We're a very classical uh, fundamental investment house and when valuations go out the window, it's very difficult for us to outperform. But you know, those, those, those periods generally are short in, in nature so over the long term we tend to do well and you'll you'll take those hits um as opposed to going with the momentum yeah in, look, in order to i think fo the following the herd is uh, a zero-sum game I, I think if you do that uh, invariably you lose um you know i think to make money you need to step outside of the herd and if you look through history i mean you know there's there's a small percentage of wealthy people in the world because they do something different they don't just follow everyone else and so it's really important to separate yourself um, from the masses and, and really, you know, being a bit contrarian does help. 
Um, I think it's in, in our nature as an investment house to be a little bit contrarian and I think it helps us make money. Um, if you're doing what everyone else is doing, you're just one of the, one of the numbers, I reckon. You're bottom-up investors, but <coughs> the macro, especially these days, is deafening. Um, mm. And especially at the smaller end of the market, yeah. um, you know, the biggest swings in the index are usually a result of changes in currencies, consumer confidence, rates, etc. Um, do you take these things into account in terms of your process? Like definitely in our short, short-term numbers because at the end of the day, um, the companies need to survive the short term, especially if they've got some debt and there's covenants. You need to make sure that there's enough earnings to cover the covenants. Um, so it's a very important part of our process is, is forecasting short-term and long-term. Uh, the valuation, I think, is driven by the long-term but uh, long-term um, uh, assumptions, but we need to get to that long-term. So, yeah, look, it, it's something that's factored into our models. We're never going to get things precisely right. A lot of it is, you know, a rough guide as to what a company's worth, but just making sure that you've covered your bases in terms of risk, especially when you've got, as I said, debt on the balance sheet. Um, there's risk with that um, debt or even, you know, significant operating leverage in the business. So if there's a small change in revenue, the earnings are negatively impacted, significantly impacted. That That, that is a risk as well. The portfolios have enjoyed... Um, a lot of takeovers in recent years. I won't name them, but someone referred to you guys as the takeover kings. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you target takeovers at all, or is it just a more a welcome byproduct of the types of companies you invest in? I think it's a byproduct. When when I talk about process, we do it industry. Uh, we do an industry analysis, and we use the Porter Five Forces to work out, um, I guess, the structure of the industry, the competitive intensity intensity of the industry the company's operating in and you know a company that rates well in that is generally quite strategic we're also looking for companies that have strong market positions and generally where they haven't been run optimally and there's there's cost efficiencies and i think a lot of the um, private equity type groups are look have got the same lens as us they're looking at the same things i mean is has this company company carved out a share that cannot be um replicated easily so for example we we bought invocare a, a couple of years ago and it's currently under takeover um, from a private equity group but you look at it, it's the leading player in the in the funeral home market in australia um, it's got over tw- i think 25 percent market share in that space it's got monopolistic and duopolistic characteristics depending on regions and depending on which streams of the business you look at it's the perfect business to be taken private it can't be replicated it's a high returning business it's been run ineffectively for probably five years or so and there's upside just from managing it appropriately so you know doing all that analysis i think the byproduct of that is we we do get um probably over indexed on takeovers i think we've had 26 or 27 takeovers in seven years across our portfolios I think also being in the small cap space, um, I think you, you do get, I mean, that's just a, a function of the market in that space. That there's a lot of acquisition activity and, and we, we're pretty good at it. Yeah, I mean, PE is definitely up and about at the moment. Yeah. Um, what's your outlook for M&A over the rest of the year? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because it's kind of started off with a flurry. Uh, we've had uh, multiple takeovers across the portfolios. 
I, I think there's more coming. I mean, you just read the newspaper and there's a few of our companies are mentioned in it. Um, we've owned Blackmore's uh, f- since day dot and, you know, it's been an underperformer. We think it's not been run effectively. Um, its margins are, are well below peer margins. And so we think there's huge upside from running it more effectively. Um, I guess the big question is, would someone acquire it for what is the potential in the business? Uh, but that one's kind of, there's, there's some smoke around that at the moment. And there's some smoke around some other companies that we own as well, um, you know, that, that are resilient businesses with strong market share that are currently, um, you know, trading at not all-time lows, but very low levels due, due to depressed share market conditions. So I think opportunistically, I can see uh, private equity having a go. As I said, they need to get paid and they need to deploy capital to get paid. They only get fees once they've deployed capital, as, as I understand. So I think um, you know, our companies tick those boxes in terms of cash generation, in terms of sustainability of their earnings and cash flows, and also from an efficiency type um, improvement across those businesses, whether it's Invocare or Blackmore's or uh, you know Bega Cheese, which can be I think can be run better and more efficiently as well. In terms of takeovers, are you guys um, active shareholders? Do you participate in you know the discussions around the prices on offer for these takeovers? We are a bigger fund now. Like when we started, we had $100 million when we first started seven years ago. We've got $1.5 billion. We have significant shareholdings in, I think, strategic companies. Um, often is the case. Um, we partake in those negotiations, um, you know, because of course we are a significant shareholder in the companies. I mean, Invocare, I think we were the maybe the second biggest shareholder in that. And, um, you know, we're we're highly involved in that one. Um, we're very involved with some other ones in the past couple of years. Village Roadshow, I think we were second or third biggest shareholder in that. So we're you know, intimately involved in that process as well. And we extracted what we think was a much fairer price than where it was going to sell at. I think uh, it was, you know, the price got negotiated down to two twenty. We managed to negotiate it up to three dollars, and so all shareholders benefited from that. Uh, GBST a few years ago, we were a big shareholder in that. We managed to extract a, quite a good price out of that. I think it started at two dollars and ended up at um, three ninety five. Have you ever been burned um, by, you know, trying to demand Someone a too high a price? Uh, never say never. I look. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. We're usually quite pragmatic around um, these takeovers. Um, we've got a valuation uh, matrix. We usually stick to that. And we're not out there pushing um, for nonsensical type um, prices. We're out there very pragmatically. Matty, if I was to give you a crystal ball um, with a 12-month view into the future, which companies in your portfolio have provided the strongest returns which companies are you most excited about in other words over the next year i think bravura is a fantastic opportunity it's been recapitalized i think the management team in place will do an excellent job i think they've got great software i think they can increase their market share in their key verticals and i think they can sell some non-core assets off which will which they can use to reinvest in the core part of the business so i think there's there's a good opportunity in Bravira. Um, 
Yeah, we've got a, a number of things. I think Blackmore's, I think there's good upside there. I think with China reopening, I think demand will pick up there for, for their product. Um, you know, they're the number one player in most of the, a lot of Southeast Asian markets, um, Indonesia, Thailand. Um, they're, they're a huge player over in those markets. They've been there 20, 30 years. I think, um, I think it's undervalued how... Um, you know their position in, in those markets and I think there's a lot of growth to come as those markets move to more western type medicines and I think Australia's uh, looking much better for, for Blackmores I think um, some of the market share issues they had in the past versus Swiss I think have stabilised and I think the outlook here for the for the business has improved and I think there's a huge cost lever in the business if they, if they get that right um, the stock could easily double from here I watched a presentation you gave at uh, an investor roadshow uh, a couple of weeks ago and you were quite bullish on City Chic, which is a bit contrarian given where we are in the economic cycle. Yeah, look, uh, City Chic was a market darling like 12 months ago. Um, we originally bought in probably four years ago when it went through a restructuring process. We bought in, I think, around 60 or 70 cents back then when they spun off some of their legacy brands and became City Chic. And uh, Phil and his team uh, drove the share price from 60, 70 cents to I think it got up to $6. And, you know, at $5, $6, we liberated a uh, huge um, holding that we had in the stock. We kept a little bit. We kept a toe in it. Uh, the stock then fell precipitously over the past 12 months or so. They've had a few downgrades. They bought, they had too much inventory due to supply chain issues. They bought too much inventory and then demand fell away with all the interest rate increases. So it was a really difficult patch for them in the last 12 months. Um, the share price has, you know, fallen. I think there's concerns around solvency. The business has obviously too much inventory, but they're doing a good job running it down. And, and then if you look back at June last year, where the inventories were and where they are now, um, they're replenishing their balance sheet. Um, but it's a difficult process because it's at the expense of their profit. And so anyone focused on profit downgrades is selling the stock, but their balance sheet's improving. So we think they'll come out of this. Um, look, it's not an easy turnaround. It's probably one of the hardest ones when retail uh, companies get into trouble. Um, it's always a difficult equation, but we think they can extricate themselves. At the moment, you're not paying much um, for, for you know a, a good Aussie business and potential upside in the US and Europe. You could see them regaining their market darling status? Oh, I don't know about that, but any sort of... Um, I think if they can just stabilise the business and... and um, and, and move it back into some sort of growth, uh, the stock could easily re-rate to, you know, double or triple the current levels. But there is potential downside. It's not without risk. I mean, like I said, retail, it's always driven by customers coming in the door. If the customers aren't coming in the door, you're not making sales and the inventory is not going down. So, you know, it's a very tough macro market out there. So it's, like I said, it's not without risk. Has, it, have, has the sector been oversold given the, the economic outlook or is it fair value? Uh, I think especially the small cap space has probably been oversold. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the sort of the, the cream and the has, has come out of sort of sales, but um, there will be a base level of sales. And um, I guess it's that operating leverage, which is the big question mark for companies. You know, it's hard to pull costs out. A lot of your costs are in leases, people running the stores, etc. And, um, you know, that that's a risk is that the earnings downside is quite significant and then you get into trouble with your covenants and blah, 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 and suddenly you're having to do emergency capital raising. So there's a lot of risk 
in the short term, but I think long term, when we get through this period, there's there's a lot of value on offer as well. So you've kind of got to go through each um, individually. Um, situations are very specific, and uh, find find opportunities within that. I mean, some of the retailers are doing doing really well, and you've seen some strong prints across across those retailers. I mean, we own Michael Hill Jewelers. They continue to print out, print good numbers, um, so they're doing something right. Um, obviously, some some of those retailers have more levers than others. I think apparel's tough, and um, obviously, City Sheik's in that space. Matt, we always like to finish these interviews with three favourite questions. Um, mm-hmm. What's the one thing investors are getting wrong about uh, today's markets at the smaller end of town? I think. I think people just get caught up in share prices. Share prices go down. They equate that to the health of the company. Um, just because the share price does, goes down doesn't mean the company's unhealthy. It could just mean that for some reason there's a big seller out there and that's an opportunity. So I think you need to avoid that noise. Um, focus on the fundamentals of the company. Look at the financials. That's where the real um, the real story is, not what the share price is doing. We just use the share price as an entry and exit mechanism and you need to disconnect from the share price to make money in the share market, particularly the small end, smaller end of the market. Does that make sense? No, no, it does. And I'm just thinking, uh, what's the time frame um, where the share price is just too influenced by speculators? Um, and, you know, at what at what point does a share price become indicative of the health of, uh, health of a company? That's a good question. I think that there are those equilibrium points, um, but they can be um, quite finite and transient in nature. I think uh, you often find in the small cap space, things go from overvalued to undervalued quickly and they never find the middle ground usually the truth is somewhere in between and we're finding that now with a lot of the companies i mean you've got a lot of challenged share prices where there's we think there's a lot of um value valuation opportunity and then you've got hot sectors where they're clearly overvalued um and the truth somewhere in between for all of these companies but finding that point is uh like i said it's never permanent it's 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 very temporary can you share a story of a big win or a big loss uh, in your career. Um, what happened and what did you learn from it? Yeah, okay. One of my big learning curves. I was a, I was a stockbroker back, you know, twenty years ago. So I covered computer share, and you know, computer share got up to a multiple of a hundred times PE. Um, they had challenges moving into the US market. Uh, the the broker community loved the story because it was a big addressable market. It was the Aussie company that was taking share in that in those overseas markets. I went contrary and, and put a sell on it because I thought the valuation didn't stack up and I thought there were more challenges in the US. Um, that turned out to be correct. The stock fell 90% um, during that 2000, 2002 period. Uh, it fell 90%, actually became interesting from a valuation perspective. Um, at that point, I should have gone positive on it, but um, I let my emotions probably take over and miss the upside from that bottom because it was a good company um, just going through challenges so I learned from that and sort of have recast how I invest and and that's what I've applied um, you know as a small cap manager post that so it was a, it was a good learning curve for me it's good to it was good to learn being a broker because I wasn't running anyone anyone's money um, and I've taken that experience and translated it to I think um, success now 
If markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, which company would that be and why? That's a hard question. Um, I, I looked across our portfolio today and I was, I was looking at it and I was thinking NZME is, is a really good story. It's a New Zealand media company. And the reason I like that is the debt's low, the cash generation's high. Um, it's, it's, one of the, it's, it's probably the preeminent media company in that New Zealand market. The market is moving, you know, it's, it's new, newspapers are moving digital. Um, they're moving uh, their business from very sort of a legacy business to a new age business on that newspaper side. They've got a strong radio business. They have the iHeart radio licence in New Zealand, so that's a very digital-based uh, revenue stream for them. But the big upside really is their property portal, OneRoof, and that's the second biggest player in the market. It used to be the fourth biggest player, and it's very much like Fairfax used to be here with Domain. Um, the New Zealand market's probably 10 years behind the Aussie market in terms of transforming from print to digital in terms of real estate ads. Um, being the number two player in that market, we think they're aligned to success as that, as that market transforms into a digital market. Um, currently, you can buy NZME for about four or five times earnings. It's got very li limited debt. It's got good cash flow and it's well managed. And that property portal is massively undervalued in that business. Has it been hurt at all by the rate cycle? Yeah, it has. I mean, the share price has probably fallen from, I think, $1.40, $1.50 down to a dollar over the past um, six to 12 months. And so you have seen a pretty significant retracement in it. Um, I don't think it changes the fact that that, that um, digital portal is going to grow. And, um, you know, the digital portal is being pretty much valued at nothing in the current share price. And we think it could be worth 200, 300 million, 200 to $300 million in the next five years. Are you adding to your position or holding? Uh, we've got a pretty big position in the company. We're one of the, I think, the second biggest shareholder in it. We're pretty comfortable with our position. Um, look, we'd look to add on any sort of further weakness. Um, we've got no issue buying a company with four or five, on, on four or five times earnings. I mean, you effectively get payback in four or five years if you hold the company. It's a 20, 20%, 25% return, even if it doesn't grow its earnings. So that's a pretty good story to us. And we think there's good growth ahead of it as, it, as, as that transformation takes place. Do you have any cash to put to work if you want to buy companies or add to positions or do you have to sell out of something at the moment? Uh, we're fairly tight for cash at the moment. Uh, we did have um, that raid on InvoCare recently, so that replenished our coffers a bit, but um, we're, we're pretty short of cash. So um, we are sort of rotating a bit in the portfolio from things that are expensive to things that are cheaper. Matt, this has been an awesome chat. Awesome, Dave. We'd love to have you back on soon. Okay. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> awesome. That's it for today's episode. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. I'll see you next time.